0: Other people, the greatest asset to your Christian life, or the greatest hindrance? Other people, the greatest help, the greatest asset to, to your to, to the greatest assistance to your Christian life, right? Is it is it is it something that's a positive? Is other people a positive? Is it an asset? Is it something that's that is absolutely helpful? and wonderful, and beneficial, and great? Or is it the greatest hindrance? What do you think about other people in regards to your Christian life? Well, I have a feeling we're going to be talking about that, and that discussion begins right now. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, July the 10th, 2022. It is currently 4.08 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And ladies and gentlemen, we have made it to day number 28 and scripture number 28 And our ongoing series, 30 Scriptures in 30 Days. We are so close to the finish line. I I, I can see it. I I hope that we are there, but I'm a little bit worried. I'm a little bit worried about today, all right? And here's the reason is I have limited time in this broadcast, right? Because at about 5.20 p.m., I'm supposed to be in a car driving to Victory Baptist Church in the middle of nowhere, Texas, for the evening service, right? So that I can be preaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm supposed to be doing this evening. Evening, right? However, I'm currently live on the air, so that means I've got to wrap this up in a an enough time to get ready, pack everything up, and then drive to the church, set everything up there to be ready to preach. So I don't like that feeling that I have a I have a, I have a limited time because I like to be able to go well as long as necessary to take care of the topic and take care of the passage of scripture. That we're going to look at. So I I don't want this to be expanded in any way, shape, or form to turn into like a part one and a part two of well part twenty eight. But you know, I, I I all I can do is uh, do the best I can, and hopefully it will be beneficial. If we need to uh, if we need to address this issue that we're going to be talking about today again, we'll just do so in a separate podcast. In a, de- in a separate series. We'll, we'll place it somewhere else because we want this to be literally 30 episodes dealing with 30 scriptures and 30 consecutive days. That's what we've, I've tried to do my best to make it happen. I've come this close to accomplishing that. So let's do that. Are you ready? Okay. Day 28, scripture number 28. Before we look at anything, all right, before we even remind you of what we're doing in this series, I'm going to ask the question again, but I'm going to do so first by giving you the definition of an asset. An asset is a useful or valuable thing, person or quality. An asset is something that is useful, something that is valuable. It can be a thing, it can be a person or it can be a quality. You can have there's a quality of something that that's an asset. That that quality is helpful, that's beneficial, it's useful. An asset is something that is useful or valuable. Now, I want you to think of your Christian life. When it comes to people, when it comes to other people, are they the greatest asset to your spiritual life and to you growing spiritually, or are other people the greatest hindrance? Now, the reason I'm asking that question is we have arrived to day 28, scripture number 28, where we're going to be looking at a principle and remember how this works. Many years ago, Charles Stanley wrote a book called 30 Life Principles. That book became a Bible called the Life Principles Bible. It became a study guide. Many years ago, I came across the book and I've always struggled that Charles Stanley gives us 30 principles. He gives us 30 passages of scripture in which these principles derived. The only problem is there's no connection in many cases between the scriptures and the principles. Some cases, the scriptures contradict the principles, and it's always been maddening to me. So what I decided to do is turn on the microphone for 30 days in a row and go, here's his principle. Let's set it aside. Here is the scripture he gives. Let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can come up with a principle from it and we've come up with our own principles. It's been fun. It's been like a hermeneutical exercise and hopefully you've benefited from it, all right? But here is the principle for today. Here is the principle for today. No Christian has ever been called to go it alone in his or her walk of faith. According to Charles Stanley, no Christian, n- at no point in the history of Christianity, has a Christian ever been called to go it alone in his or her walk of faith. You're, we're not to be alone in our Christianity that we. That we've been called not to be alone, but this would seem to imply that we're called to be, well, a part of something and that we must and need be a part of something. And I have a feeling that this thing that he's going to say that we need is that we need other people. So I go back to my original question Are other people an asset or are they a hindrance? Now, I know I'm not supposed to ask that question, right? Because in Christianity, I'm I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm going to raise that question. Think about your Christian life. I I want you to just really honestly think about this. In your Christian life, have other people been the greatest asset to you growing spiritually, or can you think of time and time again where other people, other professing Christians, well, maybe people who are not even Christians, but it's always been other people that have provided the greatest hurt, the greatest difficulty, the greatest stumbling block, the greatest hindrance to you growing spiritually. In many cases, you can point to other people causing you to lose your passion, your zeal. Just they just they've made you, in a sense, backslide greatly. That that you and I'm not saying you should blame other people, but there's just no way to to not speak of the negative influence other people have had on your Christian life. Here's something. If you go from Genesis to the book of Revelation and you find every example of where sin is taking place, how many sins do you find in the Bible where it's just one person sitting there by themselves sinning alone? And how many cases where sin, wherever sin occurs in the Bible, it always involves more than one person? meaning that other people is where sin where is sin most likely to take place with you alone or with you interacting with other people in some way shape or form therefore there whatever the sin is there's anger fighting bitterness hatefulness gossip slander it somehow involves other people other and it's amazing how many sins involve more than one person that it seems like the you multiply the people you multiply the chances of sin you reduce the number of people. You at least reduce, let me say it this way, you reduce the likelihood of maybe an external, external demonstration of sin because obviously inside of us, Sinful actions, sinful thoughts, and sinful lust, but those things remain usually inside it 's only when other people get involved where then it can show up in an external way, arguing, fighting, bickering, hatred, well, whatever the case may be, and and again, hatred inside may still be there by yourself, but when you get in close proximity, then it can show up in some external display, which usually becomes the sins we talk about i just I just think it 's a kind of a fascinating just case study to go, huh, you see. So you had uh, you had Eve, okay, you could say she was in a sense by herself, but immediately Adam gets involved. So then you have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and you just start moving through the Old Testament and it's like people, 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 people and their sin constantly happens in that kind of environment. So are people the greatest asset or the greatest hindrance? Now, the principle given to us again is no Christian has ever been called to go it alone in his or her walk of faith. Now, let's see where this takes us. Are you ready? All right, let's do this. I'm moving stuff around here. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. This is the scripture he provides. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Those are pencils. If you hear weird sounds in the background, those are pencils rolling across the table. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Where is he going to, where is Charles Stanley going to take us with this? Or where's the script? I guess most important, where's the scripture going to take us? Cause we can set aside his principle. No Christian has ever been called to go it alone in his or her walk of faith. We can set that aside and you can contrast that with the questions that I asked. People, greatest asset or greatest hindrance? Now he gives us Hebrews 10. You know these verses. Verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, I I think it's very important to understand the basic historical context for Hebrews. We don't know exactly who the author is. Many people believe it's Paul. Others don't believe it's Paul. But whoever the author is, this appears to be written somewhere getting very close to 70 AD. And it seems that the audience here is very much directed to what was called the Hebrews, to the Jews, to those of Israel, right? And that there seems to be, this is written to almost tell them, hey, Judaism, Right the whole religious system of Judaism as you know it is about to no longer exist you need something better because what was getting ready to happen? Well, if this was written around 66, 67, 68 AD, 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed. They're going to have no more priesthood. They're now going to go have no more sacrifice. They're, all of the things that is required really for Judaism as a religious system to have is going to cease to exist. So they need to look to something better, a better priesthood, a better high priest, a better sacrifice, a better everything. So I think you have. To to interpret Hebrews in that historical context where I feel over and over and over so many people forget that historical context. So it's saying, hey, look, you don't turn to Christ. You don't turn to the what is better. You're going to be left with no sacrifice. You're going to be left with nothing. This is telling them Judaism is going to be removed. You better cling to that which is better. And in that context, we read this, Hebrews 10 and 24. Let us consider one another and provoke unto love and to good works. Now, in theory, that's the way we want it to work, right? That as you, you should never expect, obviously, lost people to do this. But as far as other Christians, that your experience would be that every Christian you have come in contact with, that they have tried to provoke you unto love and to good works, They have tried, that they have been a provoking influence in your life for you to love God, the things of God, and to move you and to provoke you unto good works. Can you say in your Christian life that it's been other Christians who've moved you to love God and to good works, or have you, so therefore they've been an asset? Or do you believe that it was other Christians who did more to hinder you, to provoke you to anger to provoke you to sin to provoke you to frustration which what which one do you feel now we come to the next verse not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. I think the context here is, hey guys, we need to provoke and we need not to forsake the assembly as we see the day approaching. And I think the day that's approaching there is referring to 70 AD. I think that is clearly the historical context here. And that cannot just be obliterated or forgotten. It has to be referring to that. But the concept seems to be, that, hey, as a believer, you need other people so that you can be provoked to love and to good works, and the way we need other people is we cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more. So we need to be coming together, exhorting one another, even more so as we see the day approaching. Now, the context there is what they were going to need prior to 70 A.D., Because coming 70 AD was going to be an absolutely life-changing, I mean, life-altering event with the destruction of the temple and basically Israel, no longer a nation. I mean, it's basically their entire life, their entire identity was about to be destroyed. So they needed to be meeting with one another, exhorting one another, because they were going to need each other when everything was upended and everything fell apart. So it definitely has a clear historical setting. Now, how do we pull that into our modern day context? Typically, it goes something like this. We need to be at church. Stop forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. Get to church. Actually show up. You know, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. Actually show up at a church service. Like actually be there. Actually be present. Now some people would argue but wait a minute wait a minute just the church service isn't sufficient right because in a church service do we really consider one another are we really provoking unto love and good works are we really exhorting one another so some will argue church church doesn't do that church doesn't do that so we need so others will argue we need something more now here, obviously, it just says, don't forsake the assembly. You are to assemble. So some people say, well, in our assembly, we need to assemble in such a way that we can consider, provoke, and exhort. All right. So then people are like, well, then what does that look like? All right. So there's been lots of disputes in church history about this. And obviously, you're very familiar with a modern, a very modern thinking on this. And of course, the people who who have really promoted this model, they would believe it's the way the early church met. But it's the concept of, we need to stop the assembling ourselves together, say in a sanctuary with lots of people, where you just listen to a preacher. We need to assemble ourselves into small groups, where we sit in a, semi-commercial, a semi-circle with maybe you know some snacks, and then we, we talk, we talk, we talk. Now, the problem is, that sounds so good. And everyone's like, yeah, that's what we need to do. So then when do we do that? Right? So then th- this this just becomes the never-ending like debate in, in church. So, all right. So do you want to do that on a Sunday morning? A Sunday? No, no, no. We don't want to get rid of Sunday morning service. Okay. So do we sacrifice the Sunday evening service? Okay. Some people are like, yeah, no Sunday evening service, we have small groups. Or nope, no Wednesday service, we'll have small groups. All right. So we're paying for a building. We're supporting a building, so now what you want us to do is to end one of the meetings in the building, sacrifice that so that we can go meet in homes for the goal of actually exhorting and provoking one another. And you say, "So so you want to set time, right? Okay, so all we're doing is removing the meeting from the church to homes and to small groups. How many should be in the groups, right? Five people, 10 people, whatever. Okay, so we should be a small number. Okay, now what should happen? Well, then people were like, well, I mean, I think it's an opportunity for people to share. So so then we're, we're sacrificing the actual preaching and proclamation of God's word so that now we can get together and share. And so a lot of cases, not saying in every case, it just basically disintegrates into food, what we call fellowship, talking. And it's about all kinds of things. And you're like, okay, did that, is that really... The spiritual thing that we... Some people will say, yeah, that's what we absolutely need. Absolutely need. But I've known lots of people who've gone to small groups and they're there religiously every single week. And after years of knowing being in a small group, they still seem to have no uh, understanding of the Bible, of doctrine, of theology. You're like, so what did all those years a small group do for you? Right, what? Had uh, made friends or uh, did, did that actually help you spiritually? Like, what's the case? So a lot of people think, The church service is not, doesn't accomplish this, doesn't accomplish this. So everyone's always trying to look, how do we actually accomplish this? I also know you can create situations where people can exhort one another. You can create situations where people could be together to talk about doctrine or theology or Bible study, but in many cases, you can create all of those situations and people still won't do so because they don't usually talk about spiritual things. So, so what do we do here? Do we just place this in its historical setting? Do we say, "Well, you know what?" As we see the day approaching, let's say we 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 don't apply that to seventy A.D. Let's say we apply that to the fact that we believe Christ is going to to come together. Then we need to be assembling ourselves together, and eat more. There should even be more assembling together, not less. There should be more. There should be more. Well then the problem is how many more meetings do you want? You want Sunday? So Sunday is church or Sunday 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 a Sunday school Sunday morning Sunday night. Then Monday do you have small groups Monday Tuesday Wednesday you come back to church and then have small groups Thursday Friday. Well at some point people are like no that's too much. That's too much. How much more should we assemble? Like, everyone has their theory of what it should look like. Nobody has ever really been able to articulate what it actually is supposed to look like, and no one ever seems to be really worried about calling into question, what did we actually accomplish in doing so? The things that have to be accomplished is provoking unto love. Look at Hebrews 10.24. Let's consider one another, all right? So there has to be some consideration of one another. It should be provoking unto love and to good works. There's a consideration of others, a provoking unto love and to good works. Then the assembling together so that we can exhort one another. So it's considering, provoking, provoking, Assembling, exhorting. Considering, provoking, assembling, exhorting. I want you to go through those again. Consider, provoke, assemble, and exhort. Consider, provoke, assemble, exhort. Now, let's break it down. Let's go to, let's go to consider. We'll go to Hebrews 10, 24. Let's go to the word consider, all right? Let's go to the word consider. See if we can at least make it through this part. Hebrews 10, we're gonna, this is one we're not gonna end with a lot of answers, all right? Let's go to the word consider, all right? Consider is this Greek word. It's this Greek word. Strong's G, 2657. Katanaeo, 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 to consider, choose 14 times, consider, behold, perceive, discover. It means to observe fully, behold, consider, discover, perceive, to perceive, remark, observe, understand, to consider attentively, fix one's eyes or mind upon Upon. So the idea is to consider one another, is that you are perceiving, thinking, seeing, fixing your attention on other people, not just yourself. You're considering considering others. All right? Katanaeo. Katanaeo is the idea of consider one another. You, you're not just thinking of yourself, you're thinking of other people. Now you are considering them though for a specific reason. You're considering one another in order to provoke you're there to provoke strongs g3948 paraxusmas 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 Paroxusmas is used two times contention so sharp to provoke unto this is paraxusmas is incitement to good or dispute and anger. Now, this word, this can have a good thing or a bad thing. You can provoke someone to anger. We know that. You can provoke anyone to a dispute, to an argument. We know that kind of a provocation, right? A provocation. We know that being provoked like that. But this is the idea of provoking and inciting someone to good. Right? Paroxysmos is to irritate. It can actually be the idea of irritation. Enticement. So this is the idea that you should put, focus your eyes on other people so that you can provoke them, but you're not inciting them to anger. You're inciting them to love and good works. So somehow in the Christian life, you're focused on other people. You got to see other people and you're like, okay, there they are. How can I provoke them to love? That means the love of God, the love of spiritual things and to good works. Okay. What does that look like? What does that look like? Now again, some people say it, it can't be just church. Church doesn't work. Church doesn't do that. Church doesn't do that. Church is not sufficient. Okay, then what what is? What is? Well, well we need a we need a potluck. So at a potluck, you're focusing your attention all on other people and you are provoking and inciting them to love and good works. How many people have left a potluck or a church activity? We're like, man, I was provoked to love and good works. Or, or does that happen in the preaching of God's word? Isn't it God's word that provokes and incites us to love and good works? Say, okay, no, it's a small group where we sit in a semi uh, semi circle and we that and we talk to one another. Is that what 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 actually does this? Or is it the idea that We assemble, I I mean, I don't know. You you could come up with all the different theories. So, we have consider, we have provoke, not forsaking the assembly. Let's look at the word assembly, all right? Let's go to uh, not forsaking the assembly or assembling, all right? The assembling is this Greek word. The assembling is this Greek word. Strong's G nineteen ninety seven, epi gay, Episunago gay, epi gay, epi o gay. All right, uh, yeah, that that's a, that's a that's a that's a that's a mouthful. All right, it's used two times. It means gathering together or assembling together. Um, epi sunaga gay uh, means uh, especially a Christian meeting, assembling together. So it's a gathering together in one place, the, a religious assembly of Christians. You are not, so we are to consider one another, to incite, to provoke people to love and good work. Something in the assembly is where this is to occur. It's the assembly. It, to me, it seems that within the assembly that, so let's go through these again. You need to be considering other people so that you can provoke unto love and good works. In other words, when you show up, and then this, we are not to forsake the assembly. To me, the, the considering and the provoking has to be connected to the assembling, it, unless you try to separate these. But we, we put our focus on others so that we can provoke and incite to good works and love, but we do not forsake the assembly. We, we Because we're so thinking of other people, we don't forsake the assembly. The assembly is not always about you. It's about how it impacts other people. Sometimes we assemble like, I don't, I don't want to go to church because I don't feel like it. I don't want to go to church because I don't, whatever your excuse, you don't go to church. Well, but you're not thinking about anybody else other than yourself. How does your absence impact anybody else? Large church, it may not. Small church, it may have devastating consequences, right? <laughs> right. And uh, enough if people don't show up on a, a, in a small church for Wednesday night services or Sunday night services, they get rid of the service. I, I remember I, I, I've told the story when we first moved to Abilene, we were trying to find churches that had a Sunday night service. And so we, there was this one church we thought was really you know, probably pretty good and we were going to join, but they didn't have a Sunday night service. We're like, why does they not have a Sunday night service? Like, because nobody will come. And I'm like, so everyone, nobody can think about the fact that because they didn't show up, the church had to literally eliminate their Sunday night service. People don't show up, services get eliminated. You don't don't care about how that thinks about anybody else? Yeah, If you really want to help, you show up which then allows the assembly to be there so that, well, people can be provoked. Into. Nobody ever sees it from that. Everyone forgets the assembly part, right? Oh, no, 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 no. We need it. They always want, they, they don't like the, it's always weird to me. So many people think the assembly doesn't do this. Hey, the assembly doesn't allow me to consider other people and provoke other people to love. So we need a different kind of assembly. That assembly we don't like. We don't like the typical church service. We need an additional assembly. Well, what is the additional assembly supposed to do, right? So you don't want to show up to this assembly, but we need another assembly so that we can supposedly do this by sitting around, I don't know, eating donuts, drinking coffee, and talking about the weather. No, 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 I'm not saying that. Well, then what does it supposed to look like? Nobody usually can really articulate what it is, but we, we do need to write down these words. Consider, provoke, assemble, And then we have one more word. What's the next word? What's the next word? Exhorting one another. Exhorting. Let's look at the word exhorting. Assembly. Exhorting. It's this Greek word. Strong's G 3870. Parakaleo. 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 Uh, parakaleo, parakaleo. I want to say parakaleo, all right? It is used 109 times. It means to beseech, to comfort, to exhort, to desire, to pray, to entreat, to besought, to call to one side, call for summon, to address, speak, to admonish, to beg, to entreat. The, to, the idea to exhort is you're, you're begging, you're pleading, you're, you're, you're coming aside saying, come on, guys, let's do this. You've got the provoking and you've got the exhorting. So we, this is the mentality we most must have. And again, I would ask, have to ask when it comes to other people, asset or hindrance? I, I'm still asking that question, but at least Paul, or no, not Paul, the author of Hebrews we don't know if it's Paul, says this, let us consider, so we are, we are to place our gaze and focus on other people. Let us consider one another to provoke. We are to incite other people. We are to irritate other people, spiritually speaking, to love and good work. So how, what do we need to do to consider others? What do we need to do to provoke others and to irritate them in a good way, not in a bad way, you're supposed to be there helping other Christians, not hurting other Christians, not hindering other Christians, right? And, and in fact, your, your presence in the church should be make things better, not for everyone, from the preacher to the people in the pew around you. Are you a, are you a provoking influence in a good way or you a provoking influence in a bad way? then we are not to forsake the assembly and i and i think what leads you to not forsaking the assembly is you're not you're considering other people than yourself and then you are to exhort you should be beseeching and begging and uh, other people that in a sense b- beseeching and begging and pleading with them in their christian life that they would move forward in their christian life Now, I say all of that. What is so discouraging to me? A good portion, I think, of a lot of people's Christian experience is that other people seem to never, That when you talked about other Christians, they they definitely did not consider others other than to, that they they did not consider you to help you. They considered you to tear you down, gossip about you, slander you, you know, hurt you, destroy you. They never really seem to provoke you to love and to good works. They just seem to irritate you and provoke you to anger and wrath. That there's been lots of forsaking the assembly and a lot of missing the assembly, at least I've seen in my Christian life. Again, just take the average church, how many people show up on a Sunday morning versus how many shows up on a Sunday night? How many shows up for Sunday school for worship service? Why is there a, dis- why is there a the numbers don't make sense. Why? Why? Because you're just forsaking one. Now, you're doing so, and you probably feel like you have good reason and you have good justification. But have you considered anybody else? And then we need to exhort. Now, I wish the facts were that people considered others, and they considered them for Positive reasons, not negative reasons, that they provoked for good reasons. They did not forsake the assembly and they did more exhorting than more tearing down and discouraging. These people were about to experience something horrible in 70 AD. So it has a historical context. Personally, personally, at times I feel that people have been far more a hindrance to my Christian life than an asset to it. And to be honest, I have probably been far more a hindrance to other people's Christian life. Than an asset. Everyone thinks. I mean, it's very common to say church. The church worship service can't accomplish twenty four and twenty five. That the, the the desire in the in the minds of many people is that it doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. It it. That's that's not what we need. We need something else. And what's always interesting is like, so what do we need? And then it's, it's really weird because they'll say, well, what we need is we need to get together and we need to pray and we need to preach and we need, and you're like, I think you're describing a church service. No, no, no. but a church service, it doesn't work. So what you mean is we need a church service, but we need a church service where everyone can then... Exhort and and do these. So you don't want a church service. You want where you can teach and you like you you want to be the teacher. You is that what you? Nobody can really articulate how the supposed small group is supposed to be fundamentally different than the church. Well, in the church service, we're just listening to one person. So you want everyone to be able to contribute and everyone to be able to talk. Is that what you want? So is it about and and so and everyone while everyone is talking, you think that that's going to lead to provoking one another the good works and uh, to exhortation. Because what I have seen in many groups, the more people who talk, the more disagreement (laughs) ensues. Or the more people talk, the more heresy that is promoted. I just see it always leads to more fundamental problems. But maybe that, but it's just interesting that the, the, the assembly doesn't work. So we need to assemble somewhere else. And what do we do in this assembly? Well, we need to pray. Okay. What else? We need to preach. Okay. I think you're describing a church service. So just because we have fewer people in a smaller room, it's more conducive to Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 than it is if it's in a bigger room with more people. And sometimes you just have to ask yourself, I don't know, I think, everybody, I think everybody's wanting something different. I think everybody's wanting, I think a lot of people, they don't really want the spirit, they want the personal connection. They want a personal connection and a personal experience more than spiritual edification and spiritual growth. But you can write down these words. Consider others... Provoke others to good works and to love. Do not forsake the assembly and exhort others. So, let's write down a principle and we'll end. Because I have to get ready. So we can go to church. Or hopefully some of these things will happen. So I'm going to put it this way. This will be number 44. Seek to live a life in which in which, if I can read my own writing, You consider others, you provoke others to love and good works, you don't forsake assembly with others. And you seek to exhort others. That's a very other-centric life instead of a self-centric life. I'm considering other people. Who can I provoke to love and good works? Don't forsake assembling with others. And then how can I exhort others? You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. We will have to return to this in some way. We didn't actually look at the study guide, but some of the times we've, we've kind of, you know, remember, we're not really trying to worry about Charles Stanley's point of principle. We just kind of set that aside to work on our own, but consider, you consider Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 and uh, you let me know what you think about it, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, but I'm going to still ask that fundamental question. Do you perceive other people to be an asset to your Christian life, or have they proven to be more of a hindrance? Now, I think we can answer that in many cases it's been more of a hindrance, but what do we do about that? And how can we not be a hindrance and we become an asset. Well, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 gives us some context. Now remember, it has a its its primary focus is on them coming up to 70 AD, but there's application there for us. But this concludes day 28, scripture number 28. That leaves us with two more to go. Two more to go. So by Tuesday evening, we will have completed this series, and hopefully you've benefited from it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back live on the air at around 6 p.m. Central Time, coming to you from Victory Baptist Church, where we pick up our discussion once again on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, you'll tune in. Thanks for listening. God bless.